just doesn't feel right with, without uh, me being able to watch the children go out. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to ask the children to come up. I'm going to ask the children to come on up, and I've even got candy canes just to kind of bribe them. Wonderful. All right, you all have a seat there. Have a seat. Very good. Very good. Come on. Oh, yes. Come on down. Let's see if we've got enough candy canes for everybody. Now, no one begin eating this candy cane now, okay? You have to wait and talk to your parents. And if they don't want you to eat it yet, well, you just tell them to talk to Rector Rick afterwards. But no, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'll tell you what. Why don't you take one and then pass it down? Yeah. Perfect. Now, that's uh, right. I, I was going to do something, and then I changed on you, didn't I? Now, as you all take a candy cane, I've got a question for you. Actually, I've got a couple of questions for you all. Have you all been decorating at your house? Are all the decorations up in your house? Is that right? Of all the decorations that are in your house, let me ask you, what's kind of the centerpiece? What's the, what's the big one? What's the big one that, you know, let me give you a hint. There's like a, maybe presents are all around it and stuff like that. What's the big centerpiece of decorations in your house? A tree. Yeah, does it look like that? Well, that's like a, that's like a picture-perfect tree, isn't it? But yeah, a tree. A tree is kind of like the centerpiece of our, of our, of our, of our, uh, our celebrations in our homes, isn't it? Well, I'm not going to preach about a tree tonight, I'm telling you. So I'm going to preach, but I'm, I'm going to talk about this. I'm going to talk about another centerpiece. Go back to the very first Christmas. Can you think with me to the, to the first Christmas that, of course, makes all of these other Christmas celebrations possible? Do you all have nativity scenes at your house? You kind of have an idea? If you're thinking about a, of a centerpiece in your nativity scene, like, of course, we know Jesus is at the center, but what, what's the piece of furniture? Is there a piece of furniture? Kind of like a Christmas tree. That's not furniture, but it's kind of like a big tree, but kind of at the center of your nativity scene. What would be at the very center there? Let me give you some hints. It's what everything, kind of like the presents are gathered around the tree, it's what everybody else is gathered around. In a manger? A man, like, does it look like, kind of like that, right? Except that's probably not the kind of manger that Jesus was in, but that's the kind that we like to think about anyway. But yeah, like a manger, a manger. Let, let me ask you, what's up with a manger? It's kind of a big deal. It, interestingly enough, guess this, guess what, you all? Did you know that in the Bible, a manger is mentioned six times in the Bible? Three of them are mentioned right here in this story about Jesus. Three different times, whether it's Mary looking at the manger or the angels talking about a manger or the shepherds going and seeing a manger, three different times. Half of the times the manger is talked about in all of the Bible, it's at this story right here. What's going on with the manger? Have you ever thought about what's the big deal with the manger? Yeah, well, I have, and, and I'm here to help you. And if you, I tell you what, if you listen, maybe for a few minutes, 
think that'll happen? All right, if you listen for just a few minutes, maybe you'll find out a few things that are kind of the big deal about the manger. It's kind of a big deal to God, actually. And it's actually a big deal for us. And I got one more question for you. little quiz. Have you ever noticed your nativity scene? What kind of animals do you have on your nativity scene? Name some animals for me. Cows. What else? Don cows and donkeys. Sheep, yes. Horses, yes. They're always there. But interestingly, cows and donkeys, that was good. That was a good catch, you guys. Cows and donkeys, you see that I, I, I highlighted them there, yeah. Do you know that there's almost always a cow and a donkey? Actually, it's not a cow, it's an ox. A big old burly ox. It's like a burly cow. It's a big cow. It's an ox and a, ox and a donkey. And almost always in all of the ancient iconography there, look, I, I give you arrows there that time. There's almost always an ox and a donkey at the manger. Now, if your parents listen to the Holy Post, you might have gotten a clue about this this week, but uh, chances are, you know, for some of us, we've never even thought about this. Why is there an ox and a donkey at the manger? Is it in, it, it's, it's not mentioned in the scriptures, is it? Do you have a, do you have a guess? Because they eat in the manger. Of course, they're the kind of animals that would be at a manger. That is an excellent guess. Mary may have rode on a donkey whenever she came to Bethlehem. That's an excellent guess as well. Thank you for those guesses, but guess what? There's actually another couple of reasons. And so I want you to listen, maybe just even for a few minutes, as we talk about this a little bit more. You guys, thank you so much for being up here. We couldn't have done this without... We can't have Christmas Eve without you being here in front of us. So would you let me pray for you? Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for our children. We thank you for our sons and daughters. What a blessing it is, Lord, to be a church family and to have, to have children. And we pray especially on this night, in this season. Almighty God, a rich work of your Spirit in the hearts and in the lives of our children. And Lord, along with our children, all of your children, all of us, have mercy on us, Lord Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen. Thank you all. Can you all make it back to your seats this time? All right, thank you. All right, well, we'll see if that works. I don't know if it will or not. We might have their attention for a couple of more minutes. But uh, one-third of the sermon's already been preached, by the way. Lucky you. <laughs> Two-thirds to go. By all means, even as I, I mentioned this uh, tonight, I just want to take a little bit of a, of a different kind of turn um, as I've been reflecting on this passage that is so familiar to, to most all of us, this Luke chapter 2 passage um, what stands out, one of the things that stands out to a preacher, one of the things that stands out to those who study the Scripture sometimes is, is when a word is repeated over and over and over again. And of all things, the manger is repeated. And so I want to take a moment and just simply reflect on that particular piece of the story. 
The manger plays a central role. You could say it's at the heart of the Christmas story. And so what I want to invite you to do is to, along with me, look at the manger from a couple of perspectives, two different perspectives. The first perspective is Mary in the manger. The second is the angel's perspective in the manger to help us, to help us see God's heart. And I hope to encourage our hearts as well. So first, first Mary and the manger. You have heard it, just that familiar passage read. I'll offer it to you again. And Mary gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them at the inn. And when we work if we work at all, to put ourselves in the shoes of Mary. And I think that's not an easy thing for us to do. As familiar as this story may be to most all of us, um, there's no way in the world we could possibly, possibly understand and have, a, have an idea of what must have been going on through Mary's mind and her heart throughout this entire process. But as we get to this moment right here especially, I want to at least suggest this. That this final detail, this final detail of placing Jesus in a manger because there was no room for him. This final detail of Jesus' birth must have been, from my perspective at least, from my point of view, must have been one of the last in a steady series of disappointments for Mary. So much has gone on. We know the the story. We know the chapter before Mary is, is filled with the Spirit. She's visited by an angel. She's filled with the Spirit and proclaims the Magnificat and has a, has a sobering understanding of what it is that, that she has been welcomed into to participate in. But with all of that, there must have been great disappointments because right alongside of that, there, there were so many who did not understand. Mary, Mary's closest family and friends undoubtedly did not understand what it was that she was going through. Joseph himself didn't understand until he was helped by God with a dream, as we all know. And we don't get the sense that anybody else got help with the dream to kind of understand what it is that Mary is undertaking and what it is she's experiencing. She's misunderstood by so many. She's disrupted from her home. She had to travel to Bethlehem. She, had to, she, she was ultimately going to give birth to her firstborn son away from home. Bethlehem is massively overcrowded. As we can see even right here, probably not uh, because the Motel 6 was all full. We, we know, probably we know better than that by now, but our, our translations communicate, that even this translation offers, there was no room in the inn, and we of course go to, to motels. That's probably not exactly the situation. But the situation was such that wherever it was that Joseph and Mary were staying, It was so very crowded, and more than likely they were staying in a place that was not a very wealthy place, and so they found themselves in a home, in a place where they had to share room with many of the animals. And so there they are. 
Now, by this time, Mary has no grandiose dreams about what's going to happen here. She, as I've mentioned, she's, she's pretty aware <laughs> that uh, this is pretty significant and this is not going to be pie in the sky, wonderful, all rainbows and butterflies. But you have to think that at least she held out hope for a proper place to lay her newborn child. So in many ways, the manger for her, I would suggest to you at least, is one of the final symbols of of rejection, of disappointment, even of shame. No room. No room. No place. But here's the thing, in spite of all of this, for Mary, the manger served a real practical purpose. And Mary wasn't above it all. She wasn't above. So high and mighty that she would say, no way. She wasn't above it all. And so laying her child in a feed trough, if that's what's available, that's what we'll do. And that's what she did. Interestingly enough, in contrast, see the difference between perhaps what Mary's perspective is just really a functional, practical purpose. There's no room. This is the only spot I've got. (laughs) See the difference between this and what we see in verse 12. The perspective not of Mary, but of the angels. What do the angels see? The angels communicate to the shepherds. This is God's plan all along. This particular detail is God's plan all along. In fact, it is this thing. This is going to be the sign. This is the sign. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. That's your sign, shepherds. That's your sign. In what ways is a baby laid in a manger a sign? What kind of sign are we talking about? Well, I'll offer you three, because preachers like threes, right? So, I'll offer you three. Most obviously, it was a sign in its own way that would stand out. As the shepherds go looking for a baby lying in a manger, there are just not many babies lying in a manger, because even a shepherd knows, whether he's a bachelor farmer or married, even a shepherd knows you don't lie babies In a feed trough. That's not what you do. So it's a sign. It helps them out. Helps them find the baby. And probably for many of us, that's kind of where, if we've thought about this at all, that's where we stop. But more obscurely and actually, much more importantly, it's a sign of homecoming and provision. Of God making a way for rebellious and stubborn people to return to God. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is when we think of the other verses that I mentioned at the beginning that actually have a manger in them in the Old Testament, I'm going to offer two of the three The first is Job 39, 9. 
Where, where God, after 38 chapters, essentially, for the most part, we hear Job and Job's friends pontificating on all the things that must be going on because Job is suffering the way he is, suddenly God shows up. And when God shows up in chapter 39, God begins to say an address to Job in God's ultimate sovereign authority. And in chapter 39, God runs down a list of God's majestic influence over all creation. I am the God, says God, who provides lions with food. I am the God who provides the ibex with the means of reproduction. Interestingly enough, I'm the God who provides the wild donkey with freedom. And in verse 9, in so many words, God essentially asks Job, Job, who makes the wild ox so calm that even the wild, burly ox can feed at his manger? The rhetorical question there, of course, is, Job, it ain't you. It's not you who are capable to do this, but I, God, can do just that. I'm the kind of God who can even call the wild ox to feed at my manger. But even more clearly is Isaiah 1-3, where God is addressing his rebellious people and is, in so many words, proclaiming, Even a dumb ox knows who its master is. Even a stubborn donkey knows where it gets its true nourishment. But not my people. They're more foolish than an ox. They're more stubborn and prideful than a donkey. My people do not understand is the complaint of Isaiah 1-3. But in this particular act, of God being born and being placed in a manger. God in the flesh, in a manger, God reverses the charge of Isaiah. Joel Green, in his commentary on this particular little aspect of this sign, says, because of God's prevenient activity in the birth of his son, Israel may again find its way to God. Even more important is the theological role of the sign, laying bare God's gracious act to embrace anew through his child, his people. Jesus' being placed in the manger is a sign of God graciously making a way for Israel to find its way back home. Stubborn as a donkey, Wild as an ox, for all people to find their way back home. So no, there's no animals mentioned in this birth narrative in Luke's gospel, and some of us may have puzzled about that over the years. Why do we have? Why do we do this to the nativity scene? But, but this is why. This particular reason is why from very, very early on, the ancient church has almost always had an ox and a donkey in its 
iconography, in its image, in all of the scenes of the nativity. It's this theological point that these images are, are making to us if we have the eyes to see and understand. The wild ox, the stubborn donkey, they found their home. They found their provision. Come home, people of God. Come home, people of God. God is in the manger. Your God is in the manger. But third and most overriding, I think, the third sign is just simply this. The manger is the sign of a different kind of Savior altogether. The different kind of character of God. The remarkable humility of our God. Daryl Johnson offers it this way. When Caesar Augustus thought he ruled the world, the one who spoke all the galaxies and their stars into whirling space lay speechless in a cattle trough. When Quirinius was the governor of Syria, the star maker himself entrusted himself to a teenager girl. When Herod the Great was strutting his power across the scene, God needed a mother to feed him and change his diapers. What an amazing God who's not above being laid in a feed trough and who meets every one of us in the most unlikeliest of places. He's the one who meets us in our disappointment. He's the one who meets us in our shame. He's the one who meets us in our rejection. What a different kind of Savior. He's not above meeting us in those places. He never has been. He won't be. It's what Jesus does throughout his life, from the beginning of his life to the end. Manger at a cross. This is your Savior. This is your God. He's a different kind of God. A different kind of Savior. A Savior for each and every one of us, meeting us in the darkest and the deepest and the most disappointing places of our life. God is in the manger. He's a savior for each and every one of us. The manger, Luke sees it as the, as the centerpiece. It's really the heart of the Christmas story, that little piece of furniture. Mary sees it. She sees it as a basic last option. She sees it for its serviceableness and right to do so. But ultimately, it's the sign of God's heart of relentless love for you and for me. That God would be lying in a manger. Because God is the God who humbles himself. The God who is not above meeting us right where we are. The God who welcomes us home and makes a way for us return. Stubborn and rebellious and wild as we are. He's the God who enters into our mess. He's the God who enters into our disappointment. He's the God who enters into our shame. And this is what we celebrate in the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, dear friends, let me simply invite you to do what the song that we so 
happily sing and will sing even later on tonight. Let every heart, let every heart prepare him room. Amen.